0: What might it be like for Christians to live in a pluralistic society? And what can we learn from neighbors who don't share our religious tradition? Barbara Brown Taylor is an Episcopal priest, academic, and New York Times bestselling author. Her recent book is Holy Envy, Finding God in the Faith of Others. The book follows her experience as she stepped away from the pulpit to teach Religion 101 to college students. The course attempted to expose students to teachings and tenets of major world religions. Through engaging with these different religious expressions, students in class and Barbara Brown Taylor reevaluate their relationships with their own traditions and how they live their faith. Today's interview explores the profound insights that she gleaned through the experiences about what it means to love religiously different neighbors as ourselves, how to engage with and learn from religious traditions that are not our own and how to encounter each other in our full humanity. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Thank you so much for talking with me today,
1: Barbara. I'm looking forward to it, Sherry.
0: I would love to just hear a little bit of your own story, um, since the book Holy Envy shares just a part of it, but I would love to hear how you came to the Christian faith and then what that journey was like through your experience um, as a priest and eventually into the classroom, which is where we'll land in talking about this book.
1: Yeah. I think I'm evidence that conversion is a lifelong process and not a one-time event. I experienced coming to Christian faith in many forms. I came to Southern Baptist Christian faith when I was 16 and was baptized for the second time by immersion. The first one was Catholic and I was not yet conscious. So mm. the a, after that, the Navigators found me when I was a sophomore in college, and I came to Navigators Collegiate Christian Faith. Uh, by the end of my college career, I'd come to a broad liberal Protestant Christian faith at University Chapel. In seminary, I came to Episcopal Christian faith. And now I think I've come to, I was trying to name it today, somebody on Whoever edits our Wikipedia pages lists me as a panentheist, which I laughed out loud at, though it's probably correct. I'm, I think oh. I'm in a moment-by-moment moment incarnate Christian faith on this earth where most reliable contact with the divine comes through the bodies of my neighbors and creatures and planets and my own, whether it's well or ill. Uh, so I hope I've been delivered to a deeply incarnate Christian faith I don't know what that means when this incarnation wears out, but for now, it's immediate and blessed Christian faith for me.
0: Sounds like the labels get trickier and trickier.
1: They, well, they do. And it helps to remember there are a lot of ways to be Christian. And I think you know, one comes to many kinds of Christian faith at different stages. And there's a real liberation in that for those of us who are always afraid we'll be cast out. We might get cast out of one kind, but there are others who may welcome us in. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the pulpit part lasted about 15 years it took me seven years after seminary to become ordained in the episcopal church in atlanta both because i had a lot to sort out like obedience to a bishop and going where i was told to go Mm -hmm. um, but also because i had only been episcopal a little while so only served two churches a big urban one and a Tiny rural one, which is where I got an unexpected recognition for preaching, sort of like placing in a race that you never entered. And in an odd way, that pretty much wrecked that pastoral placement for me because Mm. it was a small church and it brought attention and invitations that the congregation found unhelpful. So Another thing that fell out of the sky at that time was an offer from a nearby college, just six miles from the church, that was starting a religion and philosophy major and wondered if I would like to be the religion teacher. (laughs) And thus we arrive at Holy Envy because the most popular course was Introduction to World Religions. And very quickly, um, someone, me, who had been embedded in a very tiny Kind of Christian faith. Episcopal Church only represents about 1% of Christians in the United States. But all of a sudden I was responsible for teaching the treasures of the world's great religions. And the book covers a good 20 years of that part of my ministry, in which I learned as much as I taught easily.
0: And what a what a daunting task. I think any survey course in, in any discipline, any field is daunting but world religion mm-hmm. i mean <laughs> mm-hmm. i don't yeah i don't envy that task of of thinking we have four, you know four or five class periods to cover each major religion
1: oh and as the book details what a mistake to think that what people need is information about each of those religions. (laughs) That's the last thing they need. That's in the book, they can read it anytime they want to. But what most were lacking was any experience of world religions or any knowledge of the music and the holidays, the dance, the art, the lived experience of those faiths, which was not too hard to get a taste of since we were just 75 miles from Atlanta.
0: Well, let's, let's start there one of the decisions you made was to take students into um, kind of these learning journeys of encounters. So your student body you share was predominantly Christian, almost exclusively Christian, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: um, with exceptions of course, Uh, but you just chose to take them into these places that uh, in my interpretation were often religiously uncomfortable for them. Um, Can you talk about that experience, both for you and for them?
1: the big flip for most of them and for me was to come from the dominant religious tradition in the United States. And all of a sudden to be minority visitors to a faith, you know, that in the larger culture was itself a minority. But once we got there, we were the strangers. We were the ones who didn't know what to do or how to act or what the words meant or where we were supposed to be standing. So it mm-hmm. was a wonderful disorientation in that way that really woke me up and I think woke them up too. And so
0: you landed entitling titling the book on holy envy. Can you talk to me about what you mean by that and maybe provide a few examples of, of how that developed within
1: you? I can, though I cannot remember who first said or wrote that phrase. It could have been Amy Jill Levine. But someone used the phrase holy envy and I loved it so much because it was uh, it had paradox built into it. And yet I thought I had experienced it because I'm a curious person and I've been a world traveler. So I've I've been in and out of a lot of parts of the world and visited religious sites that I didn't know much about, but I loved being there. I either loved the art or the music or the dance or the people or the ceremony. Um, But I always felt guilty about that, because I was Christian. And there was some part of my brain that thought if I loved anything in another tradition, I was being disloyal to my own tradition. In the classroom, that was multiplied by as many students as I had, because that was their first reaction also. So when I presented that to students, It just bopped them in the head and and they loved the permission to be envious and to use that as a way, if they were, you know, people of faith, lots of college students are practicing the rummage sale, you know, what what they will let go of, what they will keep. But the ones who were very conscientious Christians found in that permission to love their neighbors as themselves. They found a, a way to practice a Christian teaching, you know, in a way that, um, did not threaten their faith
0: can you give a few examples of things that you have grown
1: to envy it it changes Um, often. To start with the nearest neighbor in Judaism, I have loved and envied the sacred debate. The idea that scripture was there not simply to be nodded at and agreed on, but it was there to be debated out of fierce love for all the layers of meaning and for God's specific intention with that word in this time and place for these people and the ways in which arguing, that's the Christian word, was seen as sacred debate you know, in, in temples and synagogues that I visited. So, and then Sabbath, of course, because Christians gave it up. I don't think we meant to, but we sure did. So Sunday was always Saturday and Sunday were busiest days of my life. Um, Islam. Uh, I got hugely taken with five times a day prayer, which not every Muslim does, you know, people are culturally Muslim. I think Um in ways that that Jews are culturally Jewish, but for those who observe five times daily prayer, especially the student athletes at Piedmont, I was wowed by young men, predominantly young men who were athletes who fasted during Ramadan, Ramadan and did everything everyone else did, but without food or water during the hottest times of the day when Ramadan occurred in a hot month. Um, the embodied prayer and the discipline of that and the, the courage of that at a, at a time when Islamophobia was at its height. You know, if people who'd pull out a prayer rug at the airport, football stadium, et cetera. I loved Buddhism's invitation to test everything the Buddha taught and said and that it was offered to me to try for myself and to decide for myself yeah. whether the truths were noble or not. So there was no call to Believe something I could make no sense of. Um, In Hinduism, I've heard this, I've heard Christians make this a terrible comparison, but I loved the affirmation of many ways to God, depending on one's temperament. You know, there was a, a way to God that went through the hands, through the active appropriation of union with the divine. There was one that was intellectual, there was one that was meditational and and based on worship. There was one that was philosophical. There were so many ways to approach union with the divine. And I found out most Hindus I knew saw Christians as bhakti um, yogis, which meant we practiced devotional, the devotional way. I loved knowing that we were on a path recognized, but that there were others. So those are the ones we did in class and I could keep going. But those are sources of past and present envy.
0: One of the things I appreciated about how you identified those things was not as an attempt to erase the differences between major religions, Mm -hmm. um, but really honoring the differences um, and and acknowledging them um, as true distinctives um, that do lead to different conclusions and different practices can you talk a little bit more about that? Because um, I think that sometimes in a pluralistic society in which people perhaps don't want to argue, they want to say, oh, fundamentally, we're all the same.
1: Mm. It almost seemed like more than I could do in a 101 course, you know, that the job there was to bust stereotypes, invite curiosity, um, bless people's practice, and encouraging them to bring teachings out of their own tradition that would help them befriend and not make enemies of people of other, other faiths. But I did find the kind of wish to take something from the, the tradition and say, Oh, that's just like the Christian view of X, Y, or Z. And it it wasn't at all. It was its own thing. So we focus not only on differences, but even on contradictions, you know, that, that when it comes to the identity of Jesus and the importance of his life, Jews and Christians have fundamentally different ideas about that. And when it comes to the death and resurrection of Jesus on a cross, Christians and Muslims have fundamentally different views about that. So we also, I, I did get to have one advanced course where we talked about Muslim and Christian views of Jesus, and that was fascinating.
0: So for many Christians, especially those raised, um, with evangelicalism or evangelism as close to their heartbeat, there is a wariness about interfaith dialogue and even about interfaith education. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And sometimes beneath that is a, is a question. What if I lose my faith in learning about other faiths? Uh, Is there a threat even in this kind of education? Can you Mm -hmm. talk about how you navigated that?
1: At the beginning of every class I taught, not just world religions, but especially introduction to Christian theology, I would say you may not be in the best place to take this class right now because you'll never be able to unlearn what you learn. So, you know, take a look at the syllabus, read that thing, look at the class assignments and, you know, take your own pulse and see if this is a good time. If you're new to faith, if your faith is wobbly right now, and that is any way frightening for you this course will be here in four years. If you're here in four years, come back to it later and see how it is then. But but think twice because this is, you can't unlearn what you learn in this class. And it will certainly cause you to question your faith. Uh, my dearest hope is it will not cause anyone to lose his or her faith, but I cannot imagine that it won't shift it, at least in terms of um, how you view your neighbors. So, so I would make that announcement. And I, there were very, very few incidences of students coming to see me about that. Uh, somehow, we pulled off in the classroom that that this was not hugely different from going on a university international trip. You know that loving what you discovered in South America or Europe. Uh, probably wouldn't make you announce your U.S citizenship not a perfect metaphor. but you know we were travelers we were we were we were travelers and we were going places to see other people in their places and we could still come home. So very few very few students sought me out because they had faith crises, though some worried about that at the beginning.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned that one of the great learnings is often the awareness of having a worldview. Versus the kind of naive perception that that doesn't exist.
1: Um, Yeah. Nobody's born with one, but yeah, that's very scary, I think. Uh, And, and it immediately leads to fears of relativism, right. For students who are at all up on that, that somehow you have your worldview. I have mine can be just like you have your truth. I have mine, but, but I think to own one's worldview to, to own the, these days, it's my intersectionality, among other things, but all the ways um, that I am me and why I am me, it causes a ripple. You know, if I'd been born in another city, in another country on earth, I don't know that I'd be Christian. I certainly wouldn't be Christian in the same way. Um, but again, it seems to me uh, our worldviews are not God-given. Our, our worldviews world are given to us in in human bodies, so...
0: Yeah, in particular times and places and contexts. context. One of the particular stories that I found most interesting was um, you describe um, a class uh, experience that you shared together a few days after the 9/11 attacks. and I'm wondering if you would if you would share that with us.
1: mm. Mm-hmm. The attack on the Twin Towers happened the same week that we had a field trip to the Atlanta Masjid of Al Islam scheduled. And there were about 18 students, I guess. I won't do numbers because I'm sure I've written it with different numbers somewhere. But there were a number of them um, signed up. It's astonishing to me now to realize that I checked with the dean who said, sure, you know, if you've called them and they've got police there and, you know, sure, go. I mean, it's amazing to me now that we encountered no pushback from the administration about going. A number of students canceled, either for their own reasons or parental reasons, but a handful of us ended up going. And it was phenomenal to be in, this was a predominantly African-American masjid, though it was open, of course, to Muslims of all kinds and cultures. But to hear an imam deliver the first sermon, in in his language, the first kutbah on what had happened, was astonishing. And there were TV, radio crews there recording. I was back in the women's section. The men were down front in the first. This was a wonderful masjid because we were all in the same room, you know, hearing the same person saying the same things. But, but afterwards, the embrace of the women around me who hugged the, the women who came with me and me and said, thank you, thank you for coming to see for yourself. Thank you for being here today. And I was just hugely moved, not only by what the Imam said, but also by the welcome of the people around who had confidence that we had seen them and heard them and would not tell untrue stories about them.
0: Yeah, that's a really striking story. And I imagine that your students have carried that very closely with them ever since.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I have too. And these days, I don't think permission would have been granted to go in all that's happened since then. But I will say also... In a survey course, the problem is to go to one synagogue, one Hindu temple, one Buddhist Dharma hall. And and I love eavesdropping in the van on the way home and hearing students say, mom, you know, we went to a temple, a Jewish temple today. And now I know all about Judaism. And I want to say, no, no, you don't, you don't, you went to one. I start thinking about people who might just wander into an Episcopal cathedral and say, I've experienced Christianity, mom. You want to say, no, you haven't. You've been one place. So I think that's what a lot of students wrapped up with. I hope is that they realized there was as much diversity in the traditions we were visiting as there was in their own. And that a lot of what we were learning about our neighbors actually applied to our Christian neighbors, um, with whom most of us had more quarrels than we did with people of other faiths. When it got right down to it, it was the, the family that quarreled and said the worst things about each other.
0: One of the, one of the phrases, um, I believe you borrowed this one, but correct me if I'm wrong, is um, about spirituality um, and spirituality being the active pursuit of the God you did not make up. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little more about that?
1: Yeah, that is a borrowed phrase from my friend, Judith Barber, who comes up with jewels like that all the time. Mm -hmm. But it was um, underlined, um, you know, like, people like Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, I mean, I read it over and over again, that especially for Christians, you know, who have teachings about how can you love God if you can't love your brother or sister? And we can argue about brothers and sisters and who are neighbors, but with the constant challenge to love those, to be neighborly to those who are not like us. um, The, the huge challenge, if I believe I am made, in god's image is to see god in those who are not made in my image and and that makes people who upset my certainty and my ideas perhaps more godlike than the people who affirm my certainty and my ideas and that's that's a sharp bone mm. but it sustains if i accept it and i have and I get to practice places where I back up from it, it puts revelation in front of me every single day.
0: So you you went in the book in the last chapter or two, a place I would not have expected you to go, which was toward uh, the story of the sheep and the goats. Hmm. And my mind was thinking of all these uh, artistic depictions of that story. Uh, But you re narrate it. And I'd love if you could talk through why that, uh, why you chose that um, and kind of what you found in it.
1: Oh, well, it's a terrifying story. Yeah. I mean, a terrifying story because it's once and for all. You go through that door, you go through that door. And I've heard every interpretation of it possible about how we're all part sheep and part goat. But that wasn't the part. I didn't focus on the the eternal damnation or reward part. But what struck me was that there was nothing in there about what people believed, nothing, you know, there was no vetting on, things that people vet each other on all the time. Do you believe this? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? It was all verbs. It was all what you did, what you did, what you didn't do, what you did, what you didn't do. And it's funny in a tradition that scoffs, you know, uses works righteousness as a, as a, a not good thing to do, to have a story about the end times, I suppose, that is so about what we do and don't do. And, and it's, you know, we're in Matthew's gospel there, and he's the one who has Jesus earlier saying, if you don't do what I say, you don't belong to me. So uh, that's what I focused on. And, and from there, it is possible to preach at least one sermon about how that's the criteria is who's clothing the naked, who's feeding the hungry, who's visiting people in prison. Um, those are the people who find favor and not the people who aren't doing those things so that that's why i was drawn to the story it wasn't one about what you believe it's about how you act and live and mirror
0: shared earlier you said in the in the van on so many of these trips you you would hear the Mm -hmm. rehearsal of belief
1: yeah um,
0: about lots of things virgin birth physical resurrection the list could go on and on right
1: Oh, yeah. There are five standard questions. And that was another helpful thing was to, to research some things that I thought were embedded much for a much longer time in Christian tradition, but they turned out to be instead late 19th century, early 20th century movements that supplied these students, whether they knew it or not, you know, with a lot of their ideas about what did or did not make one Christian. So nobody ever talked about their practice. Nobody ever talked about how they prayed or their giving or foot washing, foot washing was fun, but we won't go there now.
0: <laughs> well, this, this thread though, uh, uh, of reorienting a Christian toward what are the actual practices of the faith um, favoring action over belief would be another way of putting that. It seems like a place where you, where you landed and, and you articulated a little bit of that about kind of what is the fragrance of the Christian faith? Mm-hmm. Um Oh, yeah I, just, yeah. I just thought that was a beautiful way of putting it um, to kind of a, you kind of keep circling back to Christianity. You didn't lose your love for Jesus along mm-hmm. the way. Um, but can you talk a little bit about how you've how that thinking evolved for you?
1: The fragrance of the rose came from a reading of something by Mahatma Gandhi, who had a lot of experience with Christian missionaries in India, and um, he should speak for himself. But he was very very interested in christians giving up putting carrots on the stick or beating people with sticks and instead practicing what he called the evangelism of the rose that the rose doesn't have to offer anything but its beauty and its fragrance he didn't talk about the thorns, but, but that the rose drew people to itself through its example, its fragrance, its beauty. And he challenged Christians to draw people to them by their way of life. And that matched um, how I was reading Matthew's gospel, but how I read Jesus' life as well. Um, so uh, that form of evangelism hold strong appeal for me still how could one live how could a community live in a way that drew people to it
0: yeah and you identified I think some of the practices that you have found to be really beautiful that you've looked at within your own tradition are there any that come to mind now maybe an easier way is to say what do some of your friends from other faiths envy about
1: yours Oh, I love that. Maybe
0: that's a better way of asking that. I love
1: that. Um, I am in love with my tradition. I'm in love with bread and wine being the main thing we do. I have a Baptist friend who said that's your altar call is when you all go up for the bread and wine. I love the sacramental approach to life that God uses material things to reach out for us, not just bread and wine and water and oil and hands, but also birds and lilies of the field and and women making bread and laborers in the field, that God uses material things to get our attention and reach out to us. Um, and I also came back to the Episcopal tradition with a renewed appreciation that we have a book of common prayer and not a, a book of common beliefs. Uh, we have those two but there's a way in which if you will come pray in common and if you can make your way through those awful 1700s english hymns then <laughs> then we're on the same page and and we are yes we are standing sitting kneeling back and forth doing episcopal calisthenics but in that i saw an echo of the embodied prayer i saw at the masjid in atlanta so the study of other religions gave me gave me a way to see my own tradition through some new eyes and to see some things that I wished were more present there, that were getting more oxygen and food than they were. But but all in all, that ended up being its own kind of evidence for the goodness of visiting the neighbors and practicing peregrination. And in T.S. Eliot's phrase, to come back to where I started and see at least parts of it for the first time.
0: Yeah. That's great. Thank you. So many of our listeners won't teach world religions. They won't have an imperative like you did to dive so deeply into major religions. What kind of encouragement would you give um, to Christians who want to cultivate curiosity?
1: Mm -hmm. First of all, I did write this book because so many people said they wish they could take introduction to world religion. So I thought this was a taste. But the second thing would be in terms of exercising curiosity, a lot depends on where you live. I live in a tiny rural county, but there's a large uh, Laotian population here with a Buddhist temple. I can go there at their invitation anytime. Uh, what I tell people who want to go visiting is, is check out, call the place first, because there are some places that are designed to welcome visitors and are so happy when people come. And there are others that can be so much more culturally tuned to people who are fresh to this country, that they're still speaking in languages I might not understand, but um, it can take that shape of finding out who the neighbors are, investigating places that are friendly, but it can also take place. I've seen all kinds of interesting interfaith relationships take place in everything from building a habitat house together to organizing a fundraising 10k race in the community to cleaning up um, public playground together to book groups to culinary groups to um, music events to sharing holidays and if that's at all possible that seems like the best to me. In other words, not to focus on one another's religions particularly, but to focus on one another's humanity and how that humanity is enriched you know, through a faith lens. Um, what makes people come out for something like that? What makes them curious about meeting people like you? Why would they go to all this trouble? But the richest relationships I know about have come that way. And they've also had contention in them because once you get past the let's all be nice to each other, some hot questions can come up. But if the relationship is built, some wonderful things can happen over food that someone else has cooked with a spice you never heard of.
0: Mm -hmm. So for those who sit squarely in the Christian tradition, um, what are some examples of strangers who have blessed and disrupted the insiders
1: yeah especially blessed it's interesting to me that melchizedek shows up in the book of genesis right at the beginning of the first testament coming out of nowhere after abram has won a battle and bringing him bread and wine you can find esoteric teachers who make much of that being the first communion huh. um, in in the bible Uh, But Melchizedek is a king and a priest of another religion. He doesn't call God by the same name Abram does. And Abram's just at the beginning of his relationship with the God of Israel. So Melchizedek comes and goes very quickly in just a few verses, but he doesn't become Jewish. He doesn't join Abram in worshiping the God of Israel. He goes back um, to, to his priesthood in another faith. And yet scripture includes him. And continues to be curious about Melchizedek in all kinds of ways. And then right at the beginning of the Second Testament, you've got the story of the Magi in Matthew's gospel, who are by every best guess, insofar as they are historical characters being Persian Magi being probably Zoroastrian priests who come for their own reasons. And I had a good time looking at the words because I read in English like a lot of our listeners do. But in Christian tradition, you always hear that they knelt down and worshiped Jesus. But if you go into the words, they honored him with gifts. And then they got on their camels and went home. So again, they were strangers who came from outside the group blessed the group, brought gifts to the group, and went back to where they'd come from. Those are two large examples planted near the beginning of each Testament. But once you get on that kick, you can go on and on and on with outsiders to the tradition that don't become part of it. There there are those who do, but there are many who do not. And they enrich the tradition without staying. And I think that's the best biblical Precedent of all for staying open to ways God works like that right now.
0: Barbara, thank you so much
1: for talking with me today. I could have talked to you for hours. You can tell. Thank you.
0: <laughs> You've been listening to the Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Sushama Austin Connor, and Sherry Osting. Our producer is Brooke Mateka. Like what you're hearing. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And while you're at it, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. The Distillery is a production of the Office of Continuing Education at Princeton Theological Seminary. Find out more at thedistillery.ptsem.edu. Until next time,
1: thanks for listening.